Oh, every culture faces death. But the ancient world that Jesus was living in faced it far, far sooner than we do today. Life expectancy in the Roman Empire was 21 years of age. A number that was depressed significantly by a massive infant mortality rate, as, far as, as well as untold numbers of mothers who died in childbirth. On top of that, disease was rampant, violence was epidemic, and human life was just considered cheap. And so into this world burst Jesus, who not only faced death, but conquered it. And not just for himself, but for everyone who would ever put their faith in him as Savior. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, you follow along as I begin reading in verse 11. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. You got to understand at this point in the ministry of Jesus, huge crowds just keep following him. That's where we are right now. Huge crowd. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow and a considerable crowd From the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. That was like a thing they carried the dead body on. Not a coffin, open wicker basket. The young man was probably stretched out with his arms crossed, Lying on his back in an open wicker basket. He touched the bier and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Oh, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, there are only three instances of Jesus raising anyone from the dead. This was not his calling card. He didn't just go doing this all the time. Three instances. And Luke is the only one that gives us this account of what happened in the city of Nain. So what can we learn about Jesus as he turns this funeral scene upside down by stopping death in its tracks? Well, number one, Jesus sees us. And feels deeply for us. Look at verse 13 again. And when the Lord, say it with me, saw her. Say it again. Saw her. 
please don't let those two little words just fall flat on you. Because we live in a world, do we not? We live in a world where so many people no longer notice people. So many people no longer notice people as if faces have been grayed out and blurred to the margins of their schedule and to-do list. But as pressed as Jesus was, you, you read in the Gospels, he was pressed constantly. As pressed as Jesus was by so many who wanted so much from him, he never let that happen. He never let it happen. He never just pulled back. This is what can happen to us. He never just pulled back and started seeing humanity in general. As if specific people no longer existed and no longer mattered. In a world that was clouded over by the same kind of confusion and chaos and pain that we still have swirling around us today. Jesus still saw people, individual people who had names and histories and struggles and fears. All through the Gospels, this is not exceptional, this is normal. All through the Gospels, you will see Jesus stopping in the midst of a noisy, crowded street because one person has called out to him. One person has touched him. And very often, very often, it's someone who was marginalized, overlooked, and even overrun by the crowd. But not by Jesus. The first thing he does is look at this woman. Not the crowd, not the dead boy. In the midst of, picture this, in the midst of two raucous, noisy crowds. He's got, commentators say it's likely he's got up to a thousand people. It's hard to move along with a thousand people and it not be noisy. In this little city of Nain, it is very likely that the entire city has turned out to grieve with her. And in that day, they paid mourners to scream and wail and bang on instruments. In the midst of this raucous, noisy collision of two crowds, his crowd colliding with this crowd coming out of town, he sees this woman, singles out this woman. Oh, but it gets even better because there's more. He not only sees her, Look at me. His heart goes out to her in compassion. Look at verse 13 again. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. The NIV captures it well. It says his heart went out to her. I hope, you know, I hope you realize it's not enough. It's a great start, but it's not enough to just see people. I'll tell you what's harder. Jesus still felt for people. He still felt for people. Something far more costly, right? 
that can leave you, if you know anything about compassion, anything about caring, anything about getting in the trenches with people, anything about sitting with people who are sorrowing and grieving and shattered, it can leave you depleted and exhausted in ways that are beyond what physical labor takes out of you. Which is why we, as sinners, constantly face the danger of just shifting into a mode where we might still see people, but we no longer allow ourselves to feel anything for them. Your eyes are still open, but your heart has shut down and pulled back. I just can't do it anymore. There's too much hurt, too much sorrow, too much brokenness. I see people, but I don't allow myself to feel anymore. Oh, if you're not careful in this broken world, you can become numb and compassion depleted. Compassion depleted. Just tapped out and overwhelmed by so much that is so wrong in so many places all around us today. And so we just shut down and decide to not feel anything for anyone anymore. Jesus never did that. Jesus never did that. In fact, through the Gospels, we tend to have an approach to life of what's efficient, what's efficient, what's efficient. There's an inefficiency about Jesus all through the Gospels. And inefficiency comes when you actually still care about individual people. All through the Gospels, you will find what looks like an unnecessary emotional involvement between Jesus and hurting people. It's just unnecessary. Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't go there, Jesus. Very often, that's why the Gospels will tell us he pulled away. You guys never forget fully God, but also fully what? Fully human. He would pull away to just be alone and pray and spend time with his father. But they would usually find him. It's like, yikes. In boats, they would arrive. They'd know he'd, he'd gone to the other side. And he never sent them away and said, not today. This is a day of prayer. I got to be alone. You will see what looks like unnecessary emotional involvement between Jesus and suffering people. Like when he weeps. Shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. When he weeps at the tomb of Lazarus, you know you're going to raise him from the dead. Why weep? Because the God side of Jesus never just completely trumped humanity. He's like, I know what I'm going to do next, so why get all worked up about this? He was fully human. And he saw what this was doing to them. And guess what? He had been in their home many times. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And he loved them. He knew what this moment was like. He knew that it had taken him two days to get there. He knew why he delayed. But he knew the angst it had created in them. The sisters ran out and met him before he ever got there saying, Lord, if you'd only been here, our brother would not have died. Jesus wept. Wept. And the Greek word that is used most often for this compassion 
of Jesus is the word splanknizomai. Kind of sounds like guts, doesn't it? You're splanknizomai. And that's exactly what it's taught about. Splanknizomai. You guys was not like, ooh, that must, that must be rough for you. Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. Splanknizomai was a word that meant to be affected on the deepest level and in a way that caused you to be moved towards them and to give them your very heart. Splanknizomai. So why does Jesus do this so often? I know we're living in a day right now of Christian rage, outrage. And so there are Christians that I think are wrong that keep pointing to the isolated, very few moments that Jesus creates a whip and drives people out of the temple and says it should be a house of prayer. And they're like, look at that. That's what we're doing. I got a whip in my hand and I'm going to Washington. Please stop. The number one emotion of Jesus all through the Gospels is compassion and gentleness. Compassion and gentleness. And oh, by the way, he wasn't driving lost, clueless unbelievers out of the temple. He was driving self-righteous people, religious people That's who he would choose very few times to show righteous indignation, not towards lost people, religious, self-righteous people. Number one emotion is this one right here. Splunk needs a mind. He was moved on a deep level and it caused him to give his heart away readily, readily. So why does he do this so often? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus did not come to give us advice or to give us additional resources and power. He came to give us himself. To give us himself. Himself. Which is a much more costly and amazing thing to do which is what sets Christianity apart in a category by itself from other religions. I hope you realize, I try to tell you this all the time. Every other religion calls out to you and tries to reorient you and tell you what you need to do. It's, it's informational, it's instructional, it's educational. It's not personal. And it's certainly not sacrificial on the part of the deity. The deity remains aloof and just sends you some information. Not Christianity. Not Jesus. Not at all. Jesus comes into your life. Here's the difference between religion and Christianity. Jesus comes into your life. Not from a distance to reorient you and tell you what to do, comes into your life and says, let's do this together. Everything that is mine is now yours. I am with you. I love you. I will never leave you. It's a relationship that is intimate and personal 
which makes it far more transformational from the inside out than religion ever could be. The same Jesus who saw this woman sees you today in whatever you're facing. And his heart goes out to you. He sees you today. His heart goes out to you because he knows our suffering. He remembers our limitations. We're but dust. Our limitations and our losses. And he hears our cries of anguish. He knows. He cares. And he is calling to you. See, when Jesus went to the cross... You find this in the scriptures. When Jesus went to the cross, he did not just bear our sins. Hallelujah. He is the sin bearer. He is the ultimate lamb of God. He is the all-sufficient sacrifice and payment to a holy God that turned his wrath back from us. But you guys never lose sight of Christianity. And Jesus brings you more, more. He didn't just bear our sins. He bore our griefs. And carried our sorrows. That's the kind of savior you have in Christianity. Which is why Isaiah 53.3 says. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of, say it, sorrows. And acquainted with what? Grief. Grief. He gets it. He gets it. He knows. He cares. See, Christianity has a personal, compassionate, suffering Savior. While religion just tells you what you need to do. What do you have today? Religion? And you can have it right here in a church that I think is not perfect, but it's a good church that keeps trying to make this distinction for you. Do you realize you can settle into and create your own version of nothing more than religion? While I try to bring you the truth of a relationship with Jesus Christ, you could still have religion. I don't want you to have that. What do you have? Religion or a relationship with Jesus for yourself? But let me show you something else that stands out in this passage. Number two, Jesus steps into our weakness and shame. Again, I hope you realize we live in a world, surely you've seen it. Surely you've experienced it. I'm sorry for you if you've experienced it, but it happens so readily. We live in a world where so many people step back. From sorrow and grief and shattered lives. Because they don't know what to do. It overwhelms them. It frightens them. I could give you lots of reasons why people step back. They're not all the same. But there's dozens of reasons that people in this world, and it hurts. When you need people to lean in, they pull back. Jesus never did that. Jesus steps into Our weakness and shame. Look at it in verse 14. Then he came up and touched 
the bier. And the bearers stood still. Now, if you're here and you've read your Bible for years, you grew up in the church, I want you to think for a minute. Do you notice something that's missing from this passage in that moment? This encounter, these two crowds. Do you notice something that's missing that is almost always, typically, a part of an encounter like this? Nobody in this funeral party cries out to Jesus for help or asked him to do anything. Nobody. They were too busy and it happens. Just weeping and wailing. They're totally caught up in the grief, the sorrow, the hopelessness. Nobody cries out to Jesus and asks him to. You'll find many other places, and we're going to see him before we finish the Gospel of Luke, where two blind men are saying, Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on us. Not here. Not here. And so instead, it is Jesus who sees her, and it's Jesus who steps into her sorrow before she ever sees him or asks him to do anything. And I don't know about you, that is so encouraging to me, because human beings, we are very formulistic Here's how it works. You got to ask. You got to ask. He's more than willing. You've got to ask. You've got to ask. You've got to ask. Here's an example. And it's encouraging. Here's an example. Where Jesus, the mercy of Jesus doesn't wait, but moves towards her before she ever cries out to him. Are there not times where we are so overwhelmed by what is going on, we're unaware of him and just not as conscious as we should be of our need to cry out to him. And he doesn't just hover and say, see that mess right there? He didn't just turn to his closest disciples and say, see this whole weeping and wailing thing? If they would just hit pause... Do you know who I am? Hello. Word has spread. I'm here just asking. No. He didn't play those games. He is merciful. He is gracious. He does not always wait for us to ask before he moves towards us in compassion. You don't have to see Jesus for him to see you. And he doesn't always wait for you to cry out to him to move towards you with mercy and grace. Why? Oh, this is so amazing and so encouraging. Because his heart, you guys, is already turned towards lost sinners who desperately need him even when they don't know it. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. That's, that's the kind of Savior we have. His heart, he said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. Hit the posture of Jesus then and the posture of Jesus now is a heart that is already turned towards lost 
sinners. We're going to see it repeatedly. I don't want to steal any of my thunder when we get to Luke 15 because it's so good with the prodigal son. But you remember? The father sees the son from a distance before he ever gets there. And it says his heart went out to him and the father ran towards the son. This is the kind of God, this is the kind of savior we have that is so different than religion. Oh my goodness. We have a seeking, saving, merciful, gracious savior. But now I do want to point out, I do want to point out something that is also repeated, that you see it consistently through the gospels. I want to point out how this woman does fit a category that Jesus seems especially drawn to. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. He doesn't play favorites. You don't earn it, anything. But let's be honest. The free offer goes out to everybody. Some people readily want it. Others want nothing to do with it. There is a category that you'll see in the Gospels that Jesus is especially drawn to. It, it constantly got him grief from the religious people. Why do you hang out with these kind of people? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? I'll tell you what he was doing. He was especially drawn towards the weak, the powerless, the marginalized, and the vulnerable. A loss of a spouse, I know it rocks your world today. The loss of a spouse, the death of an only son is tragic in any era. But you guys, I want you to feel and understand this was far, far worse for her. The loss of her husband and the loss of her only son. Because the death of her, her husband and her only son, get this, guaranteed for her. These two losses guaranteed for her a life of poverty. Because when she lost them, she lost Everything regarding security for the future. She lost the equivalent of her pension, Social Security, and Medicare. Because there were no financial safety nets like we have in place today. There was nothing for her. You needed a son who would produce livelihood and would take care of you. When she lost them, she lost everything. Oh, but it gets worse. On top of that, I want you to understand her sorrow in this moment as she thinks about the financial ramifications and her head and heart is just swirling. She'd already tasted this once in the loss of her husband. And here she is again with an only son. On top of that, it is very likely that her sorrow was compounded by the guilt and shame of a culture in that day that actually believed whenever there was a premature death, whether it's a spouse or a child, it indicates that you are being punished for something heinous in your life. That's what happens to people. So picture this. Oh yeah, the city is spilling out with her. 
But she knows. The rumor mill has been churning, whispering. They're weeping and wailing, and some of them have been paid to do it. Everyone else knows it's just the appropriate thing to be there. But she knows she's being gossiped about. Word is spreading. Doesn't matter that we didn't see anything heinous. Something was going on in that family. Something was awful. Something was wrong. God doesn't just do things like this. These things don't just happen to people. Financial loss, loss of all security, hope for the future, and shame and guilt. So this woman, as she staggers out of the city gate, could not be feeling more helpless and hopeless and vulnerable. So why is Jesus so drawn to people like her? I'll tell you why, and it's still true today. Because people with power and people in power almost always want religion instead of the gospel. In fact, the more powerful you are, and the more secure you are, and the more in control you think you are, the more offensive and insulting the gospel will be to you. So you're like, I'm not that bad. I'm not desperate. I'm not pathetic. I've got what it takes. I'm doing what the world says do. I'm seeing results. I'm, 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 I'm. You don't think you need the gospel. Because religion says pull yourself together. Follow these rules. Practice these moral virtues and you'll get there. You'll get there. You'll get there. But the gospel comes in and says you'll never get there. And you could never save yourself You have to humble yourself and look to the one who did for you what you could never do for yourselves. That's offensive. That's offensive to people with power, with security, with money, with accolades. That's why the Apostle Paul says what he does in 1 Corinthians 1. When he says this, he's writing to the Christians in Corinth, right? So as churches sprung up and elders got established and churches began to grow across the Roman Empire, he would follow up with letters. He's writing the believers in Corinth and he's reminding them who they are. How did this happen? Why are you saved and other people aren't? Why are you believers willing to risk it all for Jesus and others aren't? Same thing was happening today, right? People were going nuts and hating Christianity. People were trying to stop it. And others were just drawn to it. Yes, yes. What's going on? Paul says, I'll tell you what's going on. 1 Corinthians 1.26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many. Now be careful. It doesn't say not any. All right? You'll see brilliant, intelligent people come to faith in Christ. You'll see people with wealth and power come. But you guys, not as many. Which is why Jesus said, it's so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because you trust in your money. You trust in your money. Not 
Many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You realize there is no place for boasting in the kingdom. Which is why I believe the number one sin that keeps people out of the kingdom is pride. Is pride. Is pride. I'm not that bad. I'm happy for there to be an arrangement where God does some and I do some. But not this have mercy on me, a sinner, O God, who can do nothing. Not that. Not that. Finally, number three. I want you to see something else from this passage. Jesus conquers our greatest fear to the glory of God. Look at the second half of verse 14. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Oh, this is a dramatic confrontation between life and death that takes place in front of a huge crowd that's colliding outside the city gate. And it caused the same kind of stir that it would cause today. But you might be thinking, and you might have been thinking it all through this message so far. Yeah, Brad, that's amazing. That's a great story right there. Happy for the widowed woman. Let me just say what some of you are thinking. But my sister died of leukemia last year. My husband died of cancer. I got a good friend whose son or daughter at a young age, way too young, died of this, that, or the other. Where was Jesus? Why doesn't he do things like that today? Here's what I want you to understand. As wonderful as it might be, we tend to think always in the category of right here, right now, what would make me most comfortable and happy now in this life. And his goal is not to see how miserable you can be in this life. But oh my goodness, there's something else that Jesus came to do. There's something else, which is why you only see three resurrections while he was here. His mission was not to raise people from the dead and give them back to their mamas and daddies. You need to understand, as wonderful as it might be to have your loved one raised from the dead and given back to you like he gave this woman her son. They are going to die Again, Lazarus died again. This boy died again. And in light of eternity, fairly quickly, fairly soon. And when they die, they're going to face eternity as well as the judgment of God for their sin. See, when he raised this boy from the dead and gave him to his mother, it was a resurrection backwards. 
back into a resurrection backwards, back into this time-bound, sin-cursed, suffering-saturated world of sorrow and confusing confusion. Because any current resurrection back into this life simply delays the inevitable and does not solve the ultimate problem of death and judgment that is coming for every one of us. You said, Brad, then what did he come to do and what is it I really want? Sometimes you got to help people, you know, this and say, let me tell you what you actually want. No, I know what I want. No, you really don't. What you actually want, my friend, is a resurrection forward out of this life and into the next where everything sad is going to be undone and everything broken is going to be made new and everything unjust is going to be made right. That's what you're longing for. And that's what he came to do that could be offered to men, women, young, old, black, white, rich, poor, What you're actually longing for is what the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. When he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. If you want this resurrection forward, out of this world, into one that does not end, imagine where everything sad is undone. Everything broken is made right. Just this past week at the gym, someone I, I talked to regularly sauntered over. And I don't know what he said, but it had to do with how bad things are. And I said, and that is why we so desperately need Jesus. And that's why I've got a great job. And, and need to keep doing what I'm doing. But I get it. Here's what he said next. When is Jesus going to do something about all this? Here's what's going on almost every time. Because I've chatted with him before already. When we say that, what we really mean is, I'm not that wicked, evil person. But they are all over, and I want Jesus to do something about them. I said, oh, my friend, as I continued to work on hit cardio. Hard as you can go for one minute. Regular for two. So this has to happen in two minutes because in about 30 seconds, I got to go as hard as I can and I can't talk to you anymore. <laughs> but I brought it. I was like, oh, my friend, 
every day that Jesus delays coming and making all things right and stamping out evil is a day that more can come to faith in Christ because when he returns, people will be judged and sent to an eternal hell. He's so loving. He's so merciful. He's so gracious. He delays so that more can come to him. I didn't have the tenacity to say, and you would be... I just let him think about that. He just staggered over to his machine. But that's what we're feeling. When is Jesus going to do something? Oh, my friend, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And right now, it is his mercy and grace that delays his return so that more can repent and come to faith in him, which then introduces to us Why we're here, you guys, we're not here to build houses. We're not here to just cuddle grandkids. We're not here to climb the corporate ladder. We are here to be salt and light and point people to Christ. Speak about Jesus. Share the gospel. Sacrifice and lay down your life for someone. Be gentle like him. Live in a way that they would say, give me a reason for the hope that you have. Because I don't see people with hope right now. That is why we're here. That's why we're here. He's left us here to be that. If you're like, I don't know why I'm still here. I don't know why I'm still here. I hate it. I hate it. Read your Bible. We're here to be salt and light. And he hasn't come yet and made every sad thing reversed and made every broken thing whole and made every injustice all over our world right because he's just that loving and merciful so that more can come to faith in him. If you want this resurrection forward, you can have it by faith in Jesus Christ so that when you die, you will have a resurrection forward into a living hope, a living hope that has no end. Because listen to me, Oh, yeah, life expectancy. I Googled, you know what the life expectancy in America is? 78.8. Whew! From 21 years of age in the Roman Empire. Because we don't have barbarians just coming in and wiping us out. That's helpful. We have, let me, let me just say something very controversial. We have vaccines <laughs> that help stop epidemic diseases. And we value life more than they did. But listen to me. Death is no less real. You live in America, much more likely you'll have seven or eight decades, but you will die. You can try to run from it. You can try to deny it. And you can even refuse to use the word. I hear people like, she passed. She passed what, gas? Like, what are we talking about? Is she alive, but the whole room stinks? She's dead. She died. We don't even want to say the word. You can run from it, try to deny it, and find other little euphemisms so that you don't have to ever say the word death. But it will not change the fact that God has put an expiration date on every one of our earthly bodies because of sin. You will die. And you will face a holy God. And either be judged 
because you never thought you needed a Savior, or you will have this most incredible moment where the Savior Jesus stands next to you as your advocate. In all your misery and shame and weakness and how bad you know you still are. And hear him say, she's mine. He's mine. Look at the robe of righteousness, Father. Look at the robe of righteousness that I gave her. I gave him my perfect life. My perfectly keeping your law. It's hers. It's his. Enter into your eternal Rest, And you will have something, not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. And you put your faith in him for that. But listen to me. You have to decide. It is a decision. It is a decision that you have to make. What are you going to do with Jesus? And what do you think about what he's done for you. What are you going to do with Jesus? And what do you think about what he's done for you? Awareness of this good news is not enough. I'm aware of it. You have to respond. All through the Gospels, you'll see that as Jesus did things, amazing things, it always solicited a response, a response, a response. And this passage is no different. Look at verse 16. Luke tells us, fear sees them all. And they glorified God and they recognized that God has come to earth and visited his people. What about you? Who do you think Jesus is? And what do you think he came to do? Where do you stand? Is he your savior? Is it personal? Do you have a relationship with him is life now being lived with everything that is his is yours and you know he's with you he loves you he'll never leave you and it's messy yes you still see so much about you you wish was different but you understand this work is now happening from the inside out it's not religion it's a relationship with a living savior oh come come to christ today come to jesus christ today Put your faith in him. Humble yourself and cry out to him to be your merciful savior. And oh my goodness, watch what it does in your life. It doesn't just change how you face death, our greatest fear. It changes how you live life now. Oh my goodness, because you'll be living with a living hope. And you'll have a joy that's fixed in something outside of this world So administrations come and go, decisions come and go, laws are passed and come and go and changed. Your health is good, your health is bad, your kids are doing great, your kids are not doing. All that still happens to you. But something's different because you live with a living hope and a joy that is fixed in something outside of this world that cannot be taken or shaken. Do you have that? Oh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for not being a God of religion that shouts down to us. That writes on the wall like in the book of Daniel. Thank you for taking on flesh and coming into our world as fully God and fully man. 
and showing us your heart. A heart that is turned towards lost sinners. A heart of compassion that goes out to us. Even many times when we don't see him and we don't even ask for him. But he moves towards us. Oh God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.